0: Welcome to Communicating the Glory, a podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Our purpose is both to communicate the glory of God, and to help prepare God's people to communicate His glory themselves. In this special episode, we'll be listening in to a conversation between Bill and the Reverend Nick Batsik, who is the Minister of New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Nick has made a thorough study of Edwards, specifically with regard to typology, and is published on the subject. To find out how to contact us, or how to subscribe, listen to the end of the show.
1: It's great to have the Reverend Nick Batsig with us today. Nick is the founding minister of New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia, just south of Savannah. Nick, we are big fans of the Reformed Forum in general, and East of Eden in particular, and just thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me on the show, guys.
1: Nick, you were, of course, at the Jonathan Edwards for the Church conference back in 2016, and you're in the book that came out of that conference. Your chapter is called Christ in the Song, How Edwards Can Help Us Recover the Song of Solomon. So, Nick, uh, before we go any further, why don't you tell us, what are types?
2: Sure. I I like the definition, a type is any person, place, event, or thing that God has intended and set apart to reveal some aspect of the person, work, or benefit of Christ um, in the Old Testament.
1: Now, that, that language types, is that something that we have invented or is there some sort of biblical precedent for it?
2: Well, certainly there are clear biblical principles. The word Tupas is used in Romans 5 of Adam. And so the Apostle Paul uses the word Tupas in. Uh, in Romans 5, to say that Adam was a type of Christ. There was something about Adam that corresponds to Jesus, who is the last Adam, the eschatological Adam. And then the word anti-tupas is used by the writer of Hebrews, and I believe also the Apostle Peter uses it in 1 Peter 3 of the flood being a type of baptism and baptism being the anti-type. So we we have those very clear expressions Explicit uses in the New Testament of the principle of typology. And then we also have other uh, allusions, we might say, uh, where they're very clear, explicit typological examples in the New Testament. So, for instance, Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says, was made like the Son of God, and the Son of God was like Melchizedek. And so there is some correspondence between that shadowy figure. In Genesis 14, the king priest and the redeemer. And then the last thing I'd say is Jesus himself exhibits principles of typology, both with Jonah, telling us that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the uh, heart of the fish, in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then by utilizing the language of greater than in Matthew 12, a greater than David, a greater than the temple, and a greater than Solomon.
1: Yeah, it actually seems like a pretty comprehensive and and thoroughly integral concept, actually. But is this something that they they taught you, you know, in your introduction to exegesis classes at seminary?
2: <laughs> no. Actually, I I had read a lot of us, and, and one of my best friends had uh, really poured into me. He had been reading Spurgeon's volume on typology. There's a volume out, out there where Spurgeon goes through all, all these Old Testament figures and gives what he believes to be the typological significance of each of them in covenantal history. So I'd already sort of had others op- open open the scriptures for me, uh, to show me these typological things and then reading on my own. But when I went to seminary, there was actually a lot of pushback from, Mm -hmm. uh, more from students than professors, but very clearly, this is a subject that is not widely agreed upon even in the reformed church in our day, though I would say, and Bill, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this, because I certainly know you've read a lot in this area, but, um, I think there's a lot more uniformity pre the Enlightenment, it seems to me, in yeah, reform- that's key. Maybe that's Reformed a, Writers.
1: Maybe that's something for us to talk about a little bit here is just a history of it. You you, you mentioned rightly that this is integral to the, uh, the biblical writers themselves. This is clearly of the Holy Spirit that these things are there. And we find it in the early church. But then what happens? Well, we have... Um, a kind of descent into allegory. And uh, I don't know how you would make that distinction between allegory and typology, but to me, a lot of it has to do with the intent behind it. So this wasn't an aspect of univocal agreement as Seminary you're mentioning. So tell me about what the pushback would be about. What what are the objections?
2: Sure. I think a lot of guys are rightly concerned about improper uh, allegorizing and improper reading into Scripture what the Holy Spirit was not inspired. One old Southern Presbyterian said, we must ever be on guard against putting words into the mouth of the sacred writers, things which the Holy Spirit hasn't said. And I certainly agree. And there can be a lot of abuses and church history is full of fanciful expositions, you know, especially as you get into sort of the dispensational camp of typology in the late 19th century where the the Rahab scarlet thread is a type of the blood of Christ and the wood of the ark is a type of the wood of the cross and all those things, you know, just really unsubstantiated attempts at typology and then you have obviously origin and his allegorical method the fourfold method of interpretation yeah. that gets Tell
1: me a little bit about that. First of all, what would you say was the impetus behind origin and his allegorical method?
2: You know, I I don't know the answer to that and maybe maybe one of y'all have a better attempt at it. I I think that it is a desire to read the scripture spiritually understanding that uh, the New Testament spiritualizes the Old Testament. I just read this great, great quote in Bob Inc. where he and both Voss will say the New Testament spiritualizes and eternalizes the Old Testament. And so I I wonder if those who understand that are trying to do that, but they're not doing it uh, by just taking the principles of interpretation from Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament and, and so they've they've developed this elaborate scheme. I mean, what do you what do you yeah, think?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that was a charitable evaluation of it, a legitimate attempt to mine the scriptures for for what they're worth uh, spiritually, but maybe a slightly less charitable interpretation of the Alexandrian school of allegory would have to do with a desire to really make the scriptures say something less weird, less strange, less uh, hmm. hard to uh, to present to the rational philosophical world of the day. And, you know, it's kind of a illegitimate, apologetic uh, maneuver, you know, okay, so it's talking about this strange thing. And uh, the best thing we can do about that is say, no, that's really an allegory. And you can't take it at such a basic and uh, fleshly level, and and actually is talking about much higher things, much more worthy things, of uh, in our philosophical time. Right, right. So you also mentioned the fourfold interpretation. Maybe you can tell us a little bit that as things developed more formally into the Middle Ages.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that functionally becomes a staple for, for hermeneutics, um, and we don't have a tremendous amount of helpful resources in the Middle Ages. I mean, obviously you have Bernard de Clairvaux's great commentary in the Song of Songs, which John Calvin alludes to more than anything else other than Augustine. In in his writings and in the institutes in specific, and I I wonder if the allegorical method doesn't fuel in some way. And I've not studied this thoroughly, but the mystical approach, because so much of uh, biblical interpretation in the Middle Ages becomes very mystical in nature, Mm -hmm. which is a loose way of doing, in a sense, what we're talking about doing, careful, t- covenantal, typological, you know, spiritualizing in a covenantal and biblical way. Would you agree with that? Sort of a desire for that, but much looser way of doing it?
1: Yeah, I think you'd already mentioned in some earlier discussion the lack of control that everyone's rightly afraid of. And in the hands of the the schoolmen, as uh, Calvin and others would call them, the medieval Uh, scholastic theologians, it really didn't have a whole lot of control. It was, if anything, it was controlled by the theological presuppositions of the man who was talking about it or just the whims of the preacher. You know, Mm -hmm. we speak of the preacher's sin of, you know, an an interpreting Scripture in a way that is amenable to his sermon, and I think that was pretty rife in the Middle Ages so whatever we're talking about here in typology, we're not talking about something which is just putty or plastic in one's hands that you can make the scripture say whatever you want it to. Uh, there have to be very careful controls. So that brings us, I guess, to the, the Reformation itself. What were the Reformers' views? What, 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 what did Calvin think about typology?
2: So Calvin is very difficult to uh, grasp on this point whether or not he had a strong adherence to typology. I just finished reading the two volumes uh, the Banner of Truth published on his Genesis series which are excellent mm-hmm. and full of amazing exposition and application. I did wish however that there had been more Uh, Christology and biblical theology, redemptive historical notes, and certainly more typological insights. Calvin does give a lot of typological insight when he comes to Melchizedek, obviously because we have the book of Hebrews so clearly setting that out in chapters 5 through 7. But he actually says on Joseph, he says Joseph is a lively type of the Redeemer. And I think he goes on to say one of the most lively In the Old Testament, but then he doesn't go to draw out very many, if any at all, that I remember typological correspondences to Jesus. So Calvin is interesting on this. I think he proceeds with a great deal more caution Mm. than his predecessors, and probably because of the abuses and because Rome, you know, Rome said that Melchizedek was a type of Christ in bringing the bread and the wine because he was priest, and the bread and the wine are a type of the supper. And Edwards will actually say that. Jonathan Edwards will actually um, draw that out beyond what the writer of Hebrews says. And Calvin was reticent to do that and actually says that's not part of the typological understanding of Melchizedek because Rome was abusing that and saying, see, the priest brings the sacrifice, the sacrifice is the supper. So Calvin's a product of his time, yep. and uh, you know sometimes I wish he had done more. But he does certainly affirm a a uh, clear commitment to understanding the God ordained and and spirit intended typology of the Old Testament, at least at places.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, and we never want to deny the reality of historical context that which we're after that's which you and i are discussing absolutely is a timeless objective reality of orthodoxy and it's for every culture and every time but individual theologians individual preachers they they are products of their time and and calvin's position in, in history and in God's providence was one, of course, reacting to all these Roman Catholic abuses. And of course, he wasn't going to go too far into maybe what you and I would consider a more balanced use of typology. But it's interesting to see that very clearly the, the principle was there. So that uh, whatever we balance we might say, he clearly acknowledged that future of the scriptures.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's great.
1: After Calvin, then, we move into the post-Reformation era and to the Puritans, and we know that they developed uh, these, these threads, these principles, which are to be found in the Reformers in Calvin. Tell me a little bit more about the kind of typological interpretation they were up to.
2: The Puritans and the post-Reformation scholastics, and then Edwards following in that same sort of theological line, are building on the Reformers. They're standing on the shoulders of the Reformers. They are the recipients of uh, massive amounts of refinements in theology, much more careful exegesis. I mean, everything that Calvin gives us, which is remarkable that he gave us what he gave us, and Luther and and Bucer and Zwingli and Oculampadius and all the great Reformers who gave us so much more careful and refined theology than we had had really since the early church and not and even more refined than the early church fathers. And then they are building on that. And I think one of the big principles, and Bill, you may have a different insight into this, but it seems to me one of the refinements that they first make is the refinements in covenant theology. Mm. And so while you find the essence of the covenant of works and covenant of grace in Calvin, and I think Peter Lobach shows that in The Binding of God, it, it's not quite as clearly architectonic, maybe you could say, I think it's there, but with the post-Reformation scholastics very clearly, that is the structuring, guiding, overarching principle of biblical interpretation is their covenant theology, and typology fits so nicely into covenant theology. Adam being, you know, the first explicit type of Christ mentioned by the apostles, and you can see, so naturally, if Adam and Christ are the overarching structures, then all those other figures and events and places and things of the Old Testament that are preparing us for the coming Redeemer fit right into that covenantal approach within the framework of the covenant of grace. So that's kind of my thought on that. And you do find typology everywhere in Turdin and in Junius and then clearly in Nantan and Owen and Sibs and all. The Puritans, and then um, very, very much in uh, Edwards throughout his writings.
1: By the way, what do you what do you think of the uh, the introduction in the uh, Yale edition, Volume Eleven? Are you are you happy with that introduction?
2: I mean, yeah, by and large, I think it's a very complicated volume, and I, I don't agree with everything Edwards says in it. And I think at times, you know, he sort of amalgamates a whole lot and so it's hard to kind of sift through even his use of scripture at points and his appeals to parables and riddles and enigmas and types and symbols and so um, so I think it's one of his more difficult volumes and I think it'd be hard to write an intro for it you know no matter who who wrote it.
1: So if I could circle back just a little bit to that insight that I haven't heard before, but you just mentioned the connection between the development of covenant theology and of more full recovery of typology. Yes. Uh, Is that something you've been doing some research yourself on?
2: Yeah, over the years, that has certainly been one of the things I've focused on the most, and it's where I got my love for Edwards on the Song of Songs, which we can talk about or not at some point, but... I do think you see this common theme and why you have a more full-orbed covenant theology in the post-Reformation scholastics and Puritans. And there's a consistency, I started noticing when reading the Puritans when I was young, where they're all sort of doing the same thing. And they might make different insights, especially on how Noah was a type of Christ or how Joseph was a type of Christ or, you know, some other aspect, how the Ark of the Covenant was a type of Christ. You'll certainly find that in Sibs and others. And, and yet overarching all of that is their consistent commitment to a covenant of works, covenant of grace structure to covenant theology which if you think about it really simplifies biblical interpretation because it says the whole of not only human history but theological interpretation is governed by the Adam Christ parallel mm. and and how that works out and so it simplifies it so if the if the if the overarching structure is Adam and Christ and Adam is clearly called a type of Christ why would we not then think that the the types that the figures leading up to Christ in redemptive history in the revelation of God and his unfolding covenantal plan of revelation, why would we not assume that they also hold some kind of typological place and I think the Puritans do that
1: so you're saying that a necessary concomitant of uh, a thoroughgoing covenantal theology that architectonic over all of scripture and the redemptive, redemptive history includes these typological features. On the other hand, you've got Henning Graf-Reventlow saying that uh, typological interpretation is a necessary concomitant of simply a recovery of straightforward biblical exegesis. How, where Where's the control? We mentioned beforehand that, that the concern that people would have is that there aren't enough control features. And in fact, there's this wonderful quote from Edwards, I don't know what you think about it, you know that famous one, that says this, the inferior dispensation of the gospel was all the shadow forth the highest and most excellent which was its end and almost everything that was said or done that we have recorded in scripture from Adam to Christ was typical of gospel things, persons were typical persons, their actions were typical actions, their cities were typical cities, the nation of the Jews and other nations were typical nations, land was a typical land. God's providence towards them were typical providences. Their, their worship was typical worship. Their houses were typical houses. Their magistrates, typical magistrates. Their clothes, typical clothes. And indeed, the world was a typical world. What do you mm-hmm. make of that?
2: Yeah, I very much agree with that. Edward says something similar at the intro of Types of the Messiah. He says, we find that it was God's manner throughout the ages of the Old Testament to typify future things not only as he signified them by symbolical and typical representations in the visions and prophecies in which they were revealed, but also as he made use of those things that had an actual existence to typify them either by events that he brought to pass by special providence to that end, or by things that he appointed and commanded be done for that end. And what Edwards is saying in both quotes is there's an end. So, Revelation always has a zenith, a goal, a consummation, a focal point, and that focal point is Christ and everything that God is going to bring through the person and work of Christ. And so, necessarily, all of those things have to play into that grand meta narrative to help bring about that end. Mm. So it really, it keeps the Bible together as an organic whole, which is the problem with so many that struggle with typology. I think they struggle with keeping that that organic unity together yeah, and, totally. and understanding that, you know, focal point.
1: Absolutely, you know, and that, that fits in with Edward's larger project or projects, which have everything to do with the interpretation of the, the harmony of all these things. And that his third attempt at a, you know, a, a larger grand project was the Harmony of the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can connect those things up coherently and fully is is certainly to include typology. How about the concept of learning the language of God? You know, that was in the secondary literature, that's one of the more prominent works out there, learning the language of God. And it, it's coming off of the quote, I think this is one of the miscellanies, it says here, uh, the works of God are but a kind of voice or language of God to instruct intelligent beings in things pertaining to himself. And why should we not think that he would teach and instruct by his works in this way as others, by representing divine things by his works and so pointing them forth, especially since we know that God has so much delighted in this way of instruction. And so the the suggestion is that there's a language, a typological language. Can we learn it? And if so, how it
2: yeah i certainly think there is and i think edwards does a good job at the beginning of the yale volume on typological writings in images of divine things To sort of give you a sense of that use of God's language, the way God uses flies and rivers and valleys and the rising of the sun and Leviathan and lamps and waters and serpents and roses and thorns and wood and silk. And, you know, he'll talk about the silkworm (laughs) and, and how God, even in the natural world, has given us these things that we might call metaphors or similes or just some sort of analogical use that the language of Scripture utilizes to teach spiritual truths. And so I think in as much as Edwards is right about God's use of Uh, those sort of metaphorical or simile-type language structures that God draws from the natural world in Scripture to teach divine things. So there is a typological language, and I mentioned earlier the greater than, right? Yeah. Jesus says a greater than Solomon is here, a greater than David is here, a greater than the temple is here. So sometimes that becomes trendy in our day for people mocking typology they're like uh oh, the true and greater and they kind of mock that language well jesus uses that language in the bible so we want to be careful not to mock language that god has put in the mouth of christ and christ has given us you know in the scriptures so i don't know if that quite answers your question yeah, amen, but i do but think there's a language
1: sure and i I think it's probably coherent with that bigger picture of God, as Edward says, being a communicative being, and he is speaking to us all the time. We we recognize the biblical idea of God speaking to us in creation. And I guess what we're talking about is the distinction between, say, sheep and wolves and things like that, or the sun itself being a convenient sermon illustration that you or I might think of to help illustrate our sermons to being actually, no, this is an intentional and communicative element of God's own creation, which he makes sheep to be like sheep just so that, you know, we as his people can be illustrated and that wolves can be illustrative of false teachers and mainly things like the sun being illustrative of the elements of Christ, of being the source of all good and warmth and light and and life and all the rest of it.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's excellent.
1: So let's say we can all agree that the sun is a type of Christ at what point can I, you say to me, you've gone too far, Bill, or you've gone too far, Jonathan Edwards?
2: Right. Yeah, that's an excellent question and one that we have to ask and we have to keep asking as we remain in the scriptures and seek to faithfully, by God's grace and by dependence on his spirit and in, in the due use of his word, mind those things out. And clearly, the sun is an easy one, right? Malachi the end of the Old Testament, I believe Malachi 4.2 says, but to you who fear my name, the S-U-N, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his beams. And that's obviously a messianic illusion. Uh, and you know, Christ himself said, I am the light of the world. He's the only source of light. He's the only source of righteousness. He, is, he, he gives the warmth of God's truth and love and Faithfulness and and I think you find Edwards doing that on his sermon on Malachi four on the Son of Righteousness at the beginning. Edwards will give all of those sort of explanatory clauses from the scriptures. So the scriptures give us that very clear statement, and then then it's incumbent on us to give the exposition of it, right? Because we want to remember while we are mining out principles in the New Testament. And while the New Testament is a uh, gives us all the principles that God intends for us to have, the New Testament is not a comprehensive inspired commentary on the Old Testament. That's the error I think a lot of guys make in saying we can't say anything is a type in the Old Testament unless we see it explicitly taught to be so by Jesus and the apostles. Well, that's to treat the New Testament as a comprehensive Inspired commentary. When it is a mm. a complete and thorough principle guide, it gives us the principles, all the principles God intends for us. Comprehensive principle guide. It is not a comprehensive commentary.
1: Yeah, so many good points there. I think we could probably talk about the uh, the Westminster. I don't know if you want to say addition to what was previously understood, but certainly the right development in terms of the good and necessary consequences of Scripture. An element of Reformed exegesis, a bedrock principle, is that it's not just explicit statements, but also what is uh, rightly implicit.
2: Yeah, and one place we might want to go, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun here, but is Matthew 2.15, where Matthew appeals to Hosea 11.1, 1, where the Lord says to the Old Covenant Church, out of Israel I called my son, and he applies it to Jesus, going down into Egypt and coming out of Egypt. With Mary and Joseph. And nowhere does the Bible explicitly call Jesus the true Israel, but there is a very clear exegetical defense of Jesus as the true Israel, as the last Israel, as the one who does every everything Israel should have done in order to merit the blessings that God promised to Israel covenantally. You know, He's the one that goes down into Egypt, comes out of Egypt, goes through the water into the wilderness, mm-hmm. up on the mountain, down from the mountain. You know, gives the law of God, just like Moses. He's the greater Moses. And then he recapitulates all of Israel's history as the king. Then the prophetic ministry in Matthew 23, the woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He is the great prophet. And then he's exiled at the cross. And then he is he is restored in the resurrection, the restoration prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, that's not something that is explicitly taught in Scripture, but exegetically by Matthew's appeal to Hosea 11.1, one, I think it's implicitly taught very clearly.
1: Yeah. And let me just bring probably our listeners up to up to speed a little bit on something, that there has been some discussion in-house in the Reformed tradition with regard to extent of types. Typology itself was widely accepted, uh, I suppose universally so, in the post-Reformation time up until more recent times. But there has been a distinction between those who'd say you have to have scriptural warrant and those who'd say there are types you could legitimately see without scriptural warrant. So we haven't really said that yet, but uh, Nick, what would you add to that?
2: Yeah, and you guys may disagree, and Bill, you certainly feel free to disagree with this. I am very convinced, personally and obviously willing to be corrected because the the New Testament and the scriptures do not explicitly call him a type, but I'm I'm convinced that Joseph, as Calvin says, is one of the most lively types of Christ. I mean, here's a man who undergoes death and resurrection Mm. twice, the typological principle of death and resurrection. He is hated by his brothers. He's envied by his brothers. He's functionally killed by his brothers, sold off into slavery, and then he's exalted by God. To the highest place of rule and authority at the right hand of the king and he saves the world by his wisdom and skillfulness that god gives him by the spirit of god and he feeds the world with the rich granary and jesus feeds the world with the rich grain of heaven and he is the savior and deliverer of jew and gentile just as joseph is of jew and gentile the whole world comes to joseph so there's one clear example, and again, I, I'm willing, people will differ on this, but that just seems so clear to me that, that Joseph's a type of Christ. It does, and I
1: think what you're saying, and maybe illustrating there, is that you have learned the language of God. You have listened carefully to the uh, the, the explicit types in Scripture that the New Testament specifies as being types You're drawing out the good and necessary consequences, and you've seen where those basic, redemptive historical lines are are parallel in someone else. So you're saying, you know, the antitype, Christ. Where do we see these features of his life, his death, his resurrection? Where do we see these features of his attributes and his work being played out elsewhere? And you say that's the control, right? If that's if right. in any way you would say to pick out some minor feature of Joseph that wasn't like Christ, you say, well, that's not a legitimate typological feature. But in as much as it lines up with Christ, that's legitimate.
2: Yeah, and I also think death and resurrection is sort of an interpretive key for understanding Old Covenant typology. I think you have a lot of deaths and resurrections happening with the Old Covenant figures who are prefiguring the death and resurrection of jesus which is why i think in first peter one ten through 12 as well as in luke 24 when jesus summarizes what the old testament is about we get the language of sufferings and glory death and resurrection. So yeah, I, and I certainly on think that one, that's but, helpful.
1: Yeah. On that one, let me just say, I'm just finishing up a series on Luke and I intend to go on to Acts. So not only would I agree with you that Joseph is a type of Christ, I think I would say that Paul is a type of Christ. You go through Luke and Acts, and, and it just hits you over the head, the the parallels between uh, Christ and Paul. And so you have an example, actually, of post-resurrection typology, perhaps, mm-hmm. in these these very intentional uh, parallels that Luke draws. Let me just read something from the Types n- notebook that might be useful at this point. He's quoting 1 Corinthians 10 here, and then he goes on to say this. When we are sufficiently instructed that all these things were typical and had their spiritual signification, it would be on some accounts as unreasonable to say that we must interpret no more of them than the Scripture has interpreted for us and that we are told the meaning of it in the New Testament as it would be to say that we must interpret prophecy or prophetical visions and types no further than the Scripture has interpreted it to our hand. So I think that's... We're kind of in agreement with with Edwards. Uh,
2: do you think that's fair mm-hmm. to say? Oh yes, very much so. And I, I, you know, I'm sure I am a a product largely of Edwards' typology. I am definitely a product of reading him so much. So I would definitely agree with him there.
1: And also, here's another one from the Types Notebook. First laid down that persons ought to be exceeding careful in interpreting of types, that they don't give way to a wild fancy not to fix an interpretation unless warranted by some hint in the New Testament of its being the true interpretation or lively figure and representation contained or warranted by an analogy to other types that we interpret on sure ground. So that he has some rules for interpreting types. He's not just giving free reign to his... A fruitful brain, as he says, that some might accuse him of being, but uh, wants to have some, some definite rules.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, I've had people raise objections and they say, well, it seems like you need some Gnostic key of knowledge to get where Edwards is or where some of these, you know, proponents of typology are. And I don't think that it's so much Gnosticism and, and that's an easy charge, so much as I think, you know, much of biblical interpretation is difficult, right? Peter says Paul wrote many difficult things that are hard to understand, mm. that unstable and untaught men twist their own destruction. So while there are many things in the Bible that are very simple, easy, clear, and, and the learned and the unlearned alike can get them, just like our... Westminster Confession says. There are other things that are quite difficult, and I think mining out these principles and guarding against abuses, there's not just a, a one-size-fits-all, easy, quick answer. I think it takes a grasp of as much of the scripture as we can get, and then we've got to really labor to try to do these things carefully. So i just give you an example. I think the book of Judges is a hard book, Because nowhere in the New Testament are any of the judges mentioned except, I believe, Hebrews 11, Gideon, Samson, Barak, Jephthah. And there they're just called examples of faith, which by itself is disputable (laughs) on a human level with Samson, because, you know, you're wondering, how is he a great example of faith? Fell to wine and women his whole life. But I actually think there are these principles with the judges where all the judges exhibit unlikely and unexpected victories over the enemies of God. And I think if you can get those principles, okay, here's Ehud and here's the spear, the left-handed spear into the belly, and here's the victory over Eglon. And I think then if you can say all the enemies of God in the Old Testament are types of the, the seed of the serpent. So whether it's Philistia or the Amalekites or the Amorites or Egypt or any of them, they're all types of the seed of the serpent. And, and Israel is a is a type of the ultimate seed of the woman Christ, the, the two seeds flowing out of Genesis 3.15, and then God's promise of victory in the midst of that warfare and tension. If you can see those principles of unlikely and unexpected victories. And then we look at the cross, that's the most unlikely and unexpected of all the victories. Mm. And that's the ultimate victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. Amen. And I think I think Edwards does this sort of thing a lot. That can help us say, that's a safe way to do typology where the New Testament hasn't explicitly done it.
1: Yeah. So just to draw out what we've been talking about as far as the main characters of a redemptive history, more or less what we're saying is that types have something to do with these main characters, Christ himself, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and also the the enemy. Would you say it's those four main characters that we're looking for types?
2: Yeah, I think those, that, that serves as the structure. Genesis 3.15 is the structure of the Bible. It's certainly the structure of the Old Testament. And as our Westminster Confession has stated, the Old Testament was really thrown under ordinances, types, and shadows. Mm-hmm. And so if Genesis 3.15, if we keep that in view as leading to Christ and the evil one, right? For this reason, the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the evil one, John says in 1 John three eight, I believe. Then we can say, if that's the structure of the Bible, and it's the structure of the Old Testament, and God utilizes ordinances, types, and shadows – to prepare us for the coming of the fulfillment of what he says and promises in Genesis 3.15, then I think we have to say that.
1: Excellent. Well, Nick, we could keep on talking about topology for a long time. Your insights are really useful. But I'd like to transition now more to the song, so maybe let's tell me about Edward's relationship to the song. How about that reference to the song in the personal narrative, which you've mentioned in your chapter? I'll just read just a little bit of it. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of him my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on christ on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him i found no books so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects the words of canticles one used to be abundantly with me I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. These words seem to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Canticles used to be pleasant to me, and I used to be much in reading it about that time and found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful. And then what you see with Edwards throughout his writings is he essentially pieces together, functionally, a commentary on the Song of Songs, not in one place in specific, but scattered throughout. One of the foremost and one of the most helpful starting points, I think, beyond what you just read, is his parallel of Canticles with Psalm 45. Hmm. And he looks at the similarity of language and the, the similarity of literary genre and Edwards will conclude Psalm 45 is clearly Messianic in nature, as we see from Hebrews 1, 8 through 10, and the writer of Hebrews, under inspiration of the Spirit, telling us this is about Christ, that he is the one to whom, of whom uh, Psalm 45 is speaking, and he has his bride uh, there at the end of the psalm, and there are other women coming into the courts from the Gentile worlds. And I think Edwards is rightly going to see an exegetical link in comparison between the two. It's actually, I believe, his last entry in Notes on Scripture. I could be mistaken about that, but I think it might have been the last entry he wrote, which seems to show the importance of it. And then what he's going to do is he's going to flesh that out through the vehicles of typology, principally seeing the song as a love poem about David and the Old Covenant Church. So, beloved, David means the beloved, and he'll have expositions in the miscellanies where we'll talk about the etymology and the importance of that exegetically and here is the beloved here's solomon the son of the king reflecting on the covenantal love between david and the old covenant church and then he'll draw that full circle to the fulfillment of that typology in christ and the church so it's one of the tightest in my opinion ways of getting to christ and the church in a very exegetical way and yet through the vehicle of typology
1: yeah. And I think that the song makes a really stark illustration of that. Uh the question is what do we gain by typology or conversely what do we lose if we don't have it? To my mind if we don't have typology as a tool of understanding the song of executing the song, we don't really have much of a book. Uh, I don't I don't know what's left except what people say today which is this is just an ancient Near East love poem and you know I'm not sure what spiritual value it is. Uh, would you agree with that, that uh, apart from typology, you really don't have much of a scripture to interpret?
2: Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And and I think also, uh, one of my best friends always jokes, and he says, you know, when Jesus is talking to the two on the road to Emmaus, and it says he opened all the scriptures and mm. and showed them from the law and the Psalms and the prophets, I think twice there in Luke 24 speaks of Jesus opening the scriptures, all the scriptures and showing them all the things about himself from all the scriptures. My friend always says, except the song of Solomon. Ah, <laughs> so, I, I mean, it's, it is odd that people have this aversion to it, but yet it's difficult. I mean, it is poetic and metaphorical and, it does, I believe, have a typological backbone, and so it's not an easy book to interpret. Mm. And and, that's, and neither, neither are we saying, I don't think either of us, I don't want to speak for you necessarily, but neither would I be saying that it doesn't have usefulness for the Christian marriage, but I don't think that's primarily the use of it.
1: Yeah. Maybe it would be useful at this point to talk about the Directory for Public Worship's injunction against manifold sense it says that the the true interpretation of any text is not manifold in its original you know definition of having many equal different plausible interpretations but one how does typology work in that framework
2: yeah, that's a great question. Important because a lot of the criticisms that are raised against what we're talking about would be, well, we're looking for the grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture. And those who would agree with us that the directory is correct, that there's only one, we've got to be very careful with any appropriation of a sort of, a you know, multi-perspectivalism that would say there could be lots of different meetings intended. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to get down that road of critiquing. Oh, come on, man, go for it. (laughs) Framing Poythras, because... That framework of
1: interpretation, huh?
2: Right, right. I understand what they're trying to say, but we need to be very careful, and I'm going to agree 100% with the statement of the directory. There's one God-intended meaning. However, that one intended meaning in the history of Revelation is not just grammatical, historical. This is a post-Enlightenment error, in my opinion. I think there is a necessary theological meaning, a grammatical, historical, theological interpretation to every, to every portion of Scripture, to every passage of Scripture, to all of God's Word. And I think post-Enlightenment, some have done a disservice by making us think as long as we're getting the quote-unquote grammatical historical meaning, we've done our job. Mm. And um, Poitras actually has an excellent article called The Presence of God Qualifying Our Notions of Grammatical Historical Interpretation. I think it was a Westminster Theological Journal article, and you can find it at his website, um, and it's on the use of Genesis 3.15. And he is essentially arguing very basically, because Genesis 3.15 sets the stage for all of their revelation. Every other part of Scripture must necessarily have some relationship to it, and that's the theological meaning. So that's going to allow us to look at those things like Hosea 11.1, that God is reminding Israel of what he did for them and bringing them out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son, and he's reminding them what he did for them. But Matthew, under inspiration of the Spirit, is going to go to that verse and say, But ultimately, that's pointing to Christ. And the ultimate theological implications of that verse are about Jesus as true Israel. So it's not a new, it's not a first and second reading. We want to guard against Mm -hmm. that. It's not this, well, Old Testament writers said this, New Testament writers came along and gave it a different ending, a different meaning. No, it is always the intended meaning. We just don't see it in full until the New Testament writers show us the full light of Christ shining on the Old Testament scriptures.
1: Mm. Yeah, so you would say that, and the Puritans wouldn't have written this into their directory for public worship, apart from an understanding that it's consistent and coherent with typological uh, interpretation anyways, but apart from that kind of reasonable assumption, you would say, this was the intent, not of the human author, but of the divine author who stands behind all of Scripture.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, oftentimes, the charges against the legitimacy of utilizing typology the way we're talking about it, from, you know, thoroughly confessionally reformed men who are steeped in the Westminster tradition and who love the directory of public worship, many times it's coming from the quarters of Uh, theonomic types who love Scottish Presbyterianism, they love Gillespie, they love the emphasis on sort of the implication of scripture for civil law. But one of the things I've always found ironic is when you read the Scottish Presbyterians, both in the 17th and 18th century, they love typology, even the ones Mm -hmm. with whom I might have some difference on the precise relation between church and state. So I, I would say you have to say that because both those that drafted the directory and those that received it model for us typology, Christological typology, everywhere in their writings.
1: Yeah. Funny, I have uh, Meredith Klein's a paper pursuant to the faculty forum of February 28th, 1986, open before me, and in fact, he's dealing both with theonomy and multi-perspectivalism at the same time, so that's maybe a subject for another time. But, Interesting. Yeah, So, getting back to Edwards on the song, one of the points which I think you make so well is uh, that the church in her time of her health preached a lot on this book of the Bible. In fact, disproportionately so. What have you found with regard to how many, say, Lord's Supper sermons were on this particular book, and what information would you give to us on that subject?
2: Uh, Yeah, I can't say enough about the importance of that book in church history, let alone especially reformational church history. I talked to Joel Beakey once about this as a young Christian because I'd been reading so many Puritan sermons and Scottish Presbyterian sermons um, on the song, and all of them were about Christ and uh, McShane and Haldane and, I mean, everybody. And, And I said to Dr. Beakey, as a very young Christian just about to go into seminary, I said, why is it that these men emphasize Christ so much in the Song of Songs, in communion sermons especially, as you've noted, uh, almost all their communion sermons are going to be drawn out of the song. And yet, so few do it today. And he said, yeah, you know, in fact, he said the Song of Songs was the most loved of the books of the Bible by the the better part of these men, Hmm. that it was the chief experiential centerpiece of union with Christ, communion with Christ, redemptive benefits of Christ, stirring up affection for Christ. So, yeah, I mean, I think it would do us good to get back there. And it's a shame that we've moved so far away from what we find in in our own tradition.
1: Yeah, you, you say this. After you point out that in the high-water mark of the Puritan era, sacramental sermons frequently came from this book of Scripture, then you you observe that sadly such an interest in the song could hardly be said to prevail in the church today. Far from being a frequent text, many contemporary Christians will live and die without hearing a single sermon on this book. Very sad. So how do we recover... song. How do we get better at typology? How do we become comfortable enough with it? I I say this only because I've I've discussed with some of my fellow preachers here an interest in preaching on the song. I talked it over with Kevin Bidwell. I had to admit that I wanted to get a little bit better on this before I embarked on that myself. And, you know, I have a little bit of background in it because I have a little bit of background in Edwards. But what would you say to Mm. preachers today? They say, yes, we want to preach on this, but we don't quite feel comfortable. What we should, what should we do?
2: Well, certainly reading volumes like Edwards on typology would help. As I mentioned early in this discussion, the volume by Spurgeon, I think it's just called Typology, is excellent, where he goes through different cameos of men. And you may not agree with everything in it, but there's so much to mine out of it. And... I think the more we allow ourselves to be influenced by these hermeneutical volumes, also you have Patrick Fairbairn's volume on typology, which is exceedingly helpful, a little bit dry at points. Um, Spurgeon would be the, the most devotionally accessible, and then Edwards and Fairbairn certainly would help. I think reading reading those things and trying to get our minds better around these hermeneutical principles, Mm. um, and then obviously staying in scripture. But then beyond that, I would say looking for men who model this in their preaching, and there are not a lot. You know, I think I have found Sinclair Ferguson to do a very helpful, measured amount of typology in his preaching. Certainly, very committed to biblical theology and Vossian type approach to bringing Christ into the scriptures. You know, Ian Duguid, I I find his getting to Christ from the old Testament on his, in his books on Genesis to be very helpful just for that, that single hermeneutical principle. Sometimes you'll find it in Edward Donnelly and some of the other, some of the other British reform preachers of our day. I know they, they are more apt to do it than American reform men for some reason and maybe it's because they are so steeped in the history of reform writings from their own area of the world, perhaps. So those are things that have helped, I think, me and I think would help others.
1: Yeah, thanks. I, I wonder what you think about this. I've sometimes said of Edwards in this area as well as some other Edwards that, in essence, Edwards could do this. Edwards could get away with it, although I don't mean to imply anything illegitimate there. But what I mean to say is he had the the necessary prerequisites for doing this kind of work all, all across the board because you had such a thorough grasp of Scripture itself, holistically, the whole of Scripture and also the whole mm-hmm. of the system of Orthodox theology. And would you say that maybe one of the impetite to a restriction to this very, very narrow grammatical historical sense is just to make that unnecessary, you know, that anybody can go to an isolated text of scripture and do what typical grammatical historical interpretation requires. You don't need uh, the regular fidei and you don't need the regular scriptura to really pull that off. But to do what Edwards does and to do what these great Puritan preachers did and, and what Spurgeon did, you actually need to know quite a bit.
2: Absolutely. I mean, again, the the criticism that you need some gnostic key of knowledge to get where we are is certainly not true. Um, Where Edwards was on these things, I think you do need a grasp, uh, and and I certainly don't have a grasp of the Scripture anywhere like I should. And so, the more we are submerged in the Scriptures, the more we're submerged in theological approaches and understandings of the scripture the better off we're going to be and edwards was such a massive intellect that and you know such a prolific writer that that shows the breadth of his knowledge that you're right i think he does get a dispensation as it were and and some of the other writers that do and we've got to be careful not just to become Mm -hmm. reductionistic or one-dimensional this is one aspect of our hermeneutic, right? It is one part of our biblical interpretation. It can't be the whole. And I think that's the danger. Some men that have been sort of fanatical about typology have become very reductionistic, and then they become fanciful, and then it hurts it for everybody else. So the more robust we can be in our systematic theology, the more robust we can be in our historical theology, the more robustly and carefully exegetical we can be, the better ground we're going to be on when we try to be robustly Typological.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if we've said that already, but within our, our rules for Reformed Hermeneutic, we would always say that we, we look where Scripture speaks clearly on any issue to get our, our framework and our our base doctrine to work with to places which are less so we don't go to the song to find some new doctrine of Mm -hmm. christology we have a doctrine we have a christology from places that speak very very clearly in the new testament on these things and having that clear understanding of who christ is and what he's done and how he loves his church we then see all that uh explained and illustrated and filled out typologically in the song
2: yeah, that's right. This is not novelty. And our friend Rick Phillips likes to say there have been little to no doctrinal advancements since the Westminster Assembly, except, he says, there have been progress and refinements in our understanding of biblical theology mm-hmm. and redemptive history mm-hmm. via the writings of Voss and Ritterboss there have been refinements, not novelties. And so, that's a little different way of saying what you're saying. We're not looking to do novel theological interpretation of Scripture.
1: I think that's a good way of understanding Edwards. Uh, I'm sometimes asked, you know, why do we need Edwards? Don't we have everything we need in Calvin? Uh, Don't we have everything we need in, in the Westminster Divines? And to some extent, yes, we certainly have Uh, All the theology in Edwards didn't really add to that, but we, we have some things filled out that were left a bit skeletal.
0: Thank you for listening to this special episode about Edwards and typology, and we'll be continuing this subject in our next episode, which will be released in one week's time. You've been listening to Communicating the Glory a podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Gateshead, England. We encourage you to listen to all of our episodes, which you can find at our webpage, wpts.org.uk. That's wpts.org.uk. You can also check us out on all of your favourite podcasting applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe, and don't forget to tell your friends and family about us. If you have any questions, or if you're interested in Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary, then you can reach us at our email, contact at wpts.org.uk. That's contact at wpts.org.uk. You can also reach us via our Twitter handle, which is at wpts seminary or by phone which is 07939071404 that's 07939071404 thanks for listening and god bless